0: Of European Christianity. The first one is going to be the final split between the Eastern and Western churches. So where do the names Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church come from? This schism in 1054. Uh, and then the second big thing that happens, you know, sort of around the same time. I mean, it starts before it, but you have the Viking invasions and the Viking invasions were, were crazy. Uh, and at first they threatened Christian civilization, but As a couple centuries went by, it actually strengthened Christian civilization within Europe. And then the third thing, unrelated to the other two, was the rise of holy orders that changed the way monasticism was done. Um, And and the thing is, it's going to increase the power of the Pope. It's going to increase the influence of the Roman Catholic Church to the common Christian in Europe. And it's going to produce outstanding scholars and theologians that you've heard of in the history books. Some of them will be mentioned. So the first of these big events, and I'll probably spend more time on this than any other one, is the split between the Eastern and Western church in 1054, the schism of 1054. And uh, it all centers around something called the Filioque Controversy. And, um, and so I'll try to kind of remind us of what this is all about and try to blast through this as fast as I can, because there's a lot of history to cover so this is going to be the event that finally kicks it off and, and breaks up the East and the West forever. But what I would like to point out is the break was long and coming. It's not just like these guys got along perfectly and then this one controversy comes up and they're like, I don't want to be friends anymore. It's not like that. There, there's a lot going on here for a long time. In practice, East and West were just different. In the West, the Lord's Supper, unleavened bread. In the East, they didn't care. In fact, they wanted leaven in their bread which makes no sense to me. Uh, As far as uh, clerical celibacy, meaning priests and bishops can't marry, in the West, it was mandatory. In the East, it was only mandatory for the patriarchs, like the top four guys. Uh, Anointing confirmation, in the West, only the bishop could anoint you. In the East, priests who were below the bishop could anoint you as well. Uh, You know, and and then when it comes to uh, infant baptism, same type of thing like that, anointing oil, that's all part of that. Um, in In the... west images were statues in the east they were icons when it comes to lent which is a fast in the west no dairy products in the east they could have dairy products Uh, in terms of liturgy like the order of worship and what the people do when they're in the church during a worship service in the west it was rigid it was pompous in the east it was relaxed I think I explained this a few weeks ago how like in eastern churches you kind of just walk around and do your own thing During the worship service, there's no set thing. It's very individualized. Where in the West, it's more like the group does everything together. Uh, The West, they develop a doctrine of purgatory, which is not biblical. But in the Western church, by this point, it's there. The East rejected it, but they had their own version of it. They just didn't call it purgatory, but they thought there was an in-between state between death and heaven where you would be in shadow and sorrow until God had mercy on you where that's different from purgatory. Purgatory is the idea that any sin you haven't worked off in this life has to be purged between now and heaven. So a little different, but they still had an extra, both sides had an extra, I guess you could say, step between the end of this life and going to heaven. Uh, The East had a long theological and philosophical tradition, and let's be real, the East was more civilized. Um, They have the unbroken stream of Roman Greco civilization, the philosophical tradition um, that they never lost. The West gets it and then loses it and then gets it and loses it. So the West had it until Rome fell. And then the Goths come in and you kind of reteach the Goths, all this stuff. And then the Vikings come in and they're all barbarians again. And so then, uh, you know, they have to get re-civilized with that stuff where the East never, never really lost it. And then, of course, when it comes to original sin, this is where there's going to be a a difference. The West is completely beholden to Augustine's doctrine of original sin. We would agree with original sin. The East didn't really buy it. So, like, Augustine would say, in Adam's sin, we all sinned, and so we all inherit sin and the sin nature, and the penalty of that's death. The East switches it. They say, no, what we inherit from Adam is death, and sin comes from death. And so to them, they're more like, well, there's original death, and the West is like there's original sin. And if you flip it around that way, the focus ends up being different. So if you think sin is the fundamental thing we got from Adam, then you're going to focus a lot on the cross. If you think death is the fundamental thing we got from Adam, then you're going to focus on the resurrection. And I know a lot of us sitting here are going to be like, well, it's both, duh, and that's true. But this is just what happens when you get, you know, two sides thinking along very different um paths. So the growing divide, um, you, you even have more than what was on that last slide. The East is still a continuation at that point of the old Roman Empire. The West is a new version, the Holy Roman Empire, which I talked about. Their militaries were different. Think of European knights. That's very different than <clears throat> what the Eastern uh, militaries were like. And it's going to be obvious. By the time you get to the Crusades, the Western armies are a lot more powerful, a lot more lethal, and honestly, a lot more ruthless. Um, So you're going to have that. And then, of course, the, the pope, by this time, by the time the split happens, popes were just getting more and more brazen with their claim of superiority, of primacy. Remember, the church for the longest time thought there were five equals. But, you know, the pope's probably around the three, four hundreds, started making arguments that, well, technically we're the first among equals. We're we're a little better than you guys because we come from Peter. By the time you get to this point, it's we are better than you. We have authority over you and we can actually excommunicate you, but you can't excommunicate us. And so that's going to be a frequent irritation to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, And it will set the stage for a later unwillingness for them to work out a compromise when 1054 comes. Um, One big dramatic example of this is in the 9th century. As the East finally got control of itself and settled down that iconoclastic controversy, the Patriarch of Constantinople ends up being deposed and replaced by a brilliant theologian named Photius. I'll be talking about Photius a lot for a while. Um, so those dates are completely wrong. 820 to 295. No, it's 820 to 895. Don't know how that happened. Well, I do. I made a mistake. That's all. But, um, but pretty much you you had... The patriarch that was there, Ignatius, he gets deposed. He gets replaced with this brilliant guy. Ignatius, still alive, he gets mad and says, no, we do not accept Photius. And his followers don't accept Photius as well. And just a little bit about Photius. He was a scholar. He was not a church man. Um, I mean, he was Christian. But he wasn't a, a churchman per se. He wasn't a priest, a bishop, or anything like that. But when Ignatius got deposed, the emperor came up with a scheme to make him a churchman. So we'll ordain you this day. And then on the next day, we'll make you a bishop. On the next day, you know, he had a set way to do it to where in like less than a week, the guy goes from having no church position to now being the highest guy in the East. So some people are going to look at that and say, yeah, it's a little, little dirty. But Photius was probably the most able theologian in the Eastern Church at this time. Now, in 861, the Eastern Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor, Michael III, is going to ask Pope Nicholas, whose pope dates are 857 to 8, or, I mean, 858 to 867, he's going to ask him to mediate between Ignatius and Photius. Help us arrive at a decision because we're divided. Some people want Photius, some people want Ignatius. Pope Nicholas realized this is his chance. If I come in and I say, it's this guy, then forever the popes could say, we picked the patriarch of Constantinople. We picked him. We had the authority to settle it. Case closed. Rome is superior to Constantinople. The popes are superior to the patriarchs. So the pope sends two bishops, two delegates to go over there and more or less appoint their guy. Photius being the smart guy that he is, he knew this is what Nicholas was up to. So when his two um, representatives or delegates get there, Photius has a talk with them and says, you know, he kind of intimidates them a little bit and says, look, we have a better idea than what Nicholas said. Why don't you guys give the East permission to call a council? And then the council will decide. And they're like, all right, well, that, that kind of makes sense. That seems fair. And so they did. And then the council comes together and decides on Photius. Now, of course, this really ticks Nicholas off. Because he realizes he lost his opportunity. His two bungling delegates fell for Photius's charms and his smarts. And so now, first, he fires those two bishops and deposes them. They're not even bishops anymore. Then in a rage, he declares that Ignatius is the true patriarch. And then soon after, he excommunicates Photius. So the pope, on his own power, says, Photius is excommunicated. I have removed the patriarch of Constantinople, and I've replaced him. Now, of course, you could say it, but can you enforce it? The Byzantine emperor, Michael III's is like, what? And he just ignored him. So the pope's off talking in a corner, but nobody's listening, which proves the pope doesn't have the power he thought he did. So the emperor just leaves Photius as the patriarch. So Nicholas just looks like a fool here, and his bid for supremacy failed. Uh, But what it was clear, what was clear in all this is now Rome and Constantinople are ready to go to battle over this one guy, Photius. And there's going to be some literal fighting between some missionaries as well. The eastern and western missionaries in Bulgaria nearly went to an open, violent war with each other. Both sides were trying to convince King Boris of Bulgaria to go to their version of Christianity. And keep in mind... The East and West are still one church in name. But it's clear they're not one church in practice anymore. So Boris accepted Eastern baptism. But then when the Eastern church wouldn't let him organize an independent Bulgarian church, because he's thinking, well, wait, you got a Coptic church, an Armenian church, a Syriac church. Uh, I want to have a Bulgarian church. And the East is like, no, those guys are wrong. So then he's like, hey, West, would you be willing to let me have... um, you know, an independent Bulgarian church. And so then the West is like, we're listening, right? So this is the type of competing that they're having with each other over this. And their missionaries on the ground in Bulgaria trying to convince people almost went to blows over this. And and really what they were fighting about was the differences between each other. Oh, you guys do this? Well, we do this. Well, we're better than you. No, we're better than you. We're more biblical. It was very childish. Um, and the what's really going to push everything more than anything else, the thing they were arguing about most, where they were getting in fist fights most about, was the Filioque Clause. And I talked a little bit about this a few lessons ago, but I, I will remind us of what it is. In the 6th century, which would be the 500s, so this goes back a bit, Western bishops in Spain added a clause to the Nicene Creed called the Filioque Clause the original creed says that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. What these Spanish uh, bishops did is they added and the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son rather than just the Father. Now, the Latin word for and the Son is filioque. That's why it's called the filioque controversy. So it's not like, hey, they just make up words. No, this, you know, it's just the, the right word. So, in 80, so this starts in the 6th century, right? You go forward to the ninth century. In 809, if you remember Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Empire Emperor, gave his sanction to the added clause. He's like, you know what? I'm putting my stamp of approval in the West. This is how we're going to read the Nicene Creed. And that's, that's fighting words um, to the East because they're like, you cannot add a clause without our permission. And then theologically, they thought the clause was wrong. So Photius is going to respond to the West's attacks against the East for not accepting this additional clause. See, the West is saying the East, this is why you can't trust them. We're clearly right by adding this clause, but the East is being stubborn, but Photius is going to turn it around. So in 867, he writes a circular letter called the Encyclical to the Other Eastern Patriarchs, where he denounces the filioque Clause as heretical And it condemned the Western church for all those other practices that are different from the East that I started with. So they're saying, look, you can't trust these guys for a lot of reasons. Then Photius summons a church council in Constantinople where all the patriarchs and bishops together excommunicate Pope Nicholas I. So even though the Pope excommunicated Photius, but nobody listened, Photius is now saying we as a council, not just me by myself, we're excommunicating Nicholas. Now, of course, nobody in the West listens. So the West excommunicates the Eastern guy. The Eastern guy excommunicates the Western guy. Um, Technically, both sides are not in communion with each other. This should have been when the split happened, not 1054. But what stops it from becoming a permanent split here is that before it could occur, Michael III was assassinated. He was assassinated by his right-hand man, a guy named Basil, and Basil now made himself as the emperor. And Basil realized Michael is the one who put Photius in power. For me to have an undisputed reign since I just killed this guy, I need to get rid of the guy that he also made the top churchman in our society. So for politics, Basil fires Photius, deposes him, has him put in prison, and then reinstates Ignatius. And so Ignatius is the, the now patriarch again. And then he summons a new council that reverses Photius's council, which lifts the excommunication on Nicholas. And so now both sides are getting along again. This is, to me, this is interesting, right? I mean, it's immature. Maybe that's why I find it interesting. You know, why Jerry Springer was a popular show. But anyhow, you know, you just, when you got stupid people fighting over stupid things, it's entertaining to watch. <laughs> Um, so, the dispute of the filioque clause was still inflamed even after this. I mean, people weren't forgetting. And Photius, even though he was not the patriarch anymore, he, his writings are still circulating throughout the East. And the people there are unwilling to allow the additional clause. The theologians are like, we cannot have peace with Rome over this. Now, what was the basis of his argument? He said that the father is the unique source or fountain of the divine nature, which we talked about this when we got into the Trinitarian stuff back with uh, Nicaea and all that. But just to kind of recap and when I was talking about the Cappadocian fathers, this is what they laid out for us, that they conceived of God like a, a well. In a sense, in the father or a fountain, and the father is the unique source or fountain of the divine nature, and then the son and the spirit are God because they possess all the fullness of God the Father's essence. In other words. It doesn't happen temporally. The son is eternally generated from the father, which means there was never a time he was not. He's always and forever being generated. So he's always and forever there, but he's coming from the father. So he shares the father's full essence. And then the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the father. That's what makes him different than the son. And the fact that it's an eternal procession, um, the spirit as well has God the Father's essence, but the Father has to be the source in Photius' theology. So the Son and the Holy Spirit possess every aspect of the divine nature. They just don't possess fatherhood and the Father doesn't possess sonhood and neither of them possess the Holy Spirithood, if that's even a word. Um, and so the Son possesses the essence of the Father by eternal generation, the Spirit by eternal procession. If the, and so what Photius would say is if the West is right and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son then that means there's two sources of the divine nature. Because if the Spirit is getting his divine nature from the Father and the Son, that means two sources. And if you have two sources, you don't have a trinity anymore. You just have two gods. That's, that's how Photius uh, was arguing with it. Now, I'm just going to let you know up front that almost every theologian in the western side of the world, both Protestants and Catholics alike, agree with the filioque clause. We think that the West was right to add it. But I just want to let you know that was the East's argument. And really this highlights the difference between how the East and West approach the Trinity. With the Cappadocian Fathers, as I mentioned, the East begins with the Persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then sees their unity, specifically lying in God the Father. Whereas with the... well, We'll get to the West in a, in a moment. And so the the Father... And their theology guarantees the three persons are one God because the Father alone is the fountain of deity, the eternal source of the Son and the Spirit, which causes them to possess the fullness of the divine essence. The West, and, and I know it's hard to see this picture here because of this light bulb, but in the Eastern Church, you got the Father and then the Son and the Spirit coming from the Father, eternal generation, eternal procession. In the Latin Church, you got the Father eternally generating the Son, but then the Son and the Father, if you look at the arrows, both eternally precede the Holy Spirit. Um, and so that's, that's how they're looking at it. The West gets to their position because they begin not with the three persons, but with the one nature of God. They're like, what's the essence of God? Let's start there. The E starts with the three, we're going to start with the one. And, this, and they get this from Augustine. This was, Augustine wrote a book on the Trinity that in modern print is this thick. I don't know how he wrote all that on scrolls back then. But uh, they're, they're going to follow his thought. <clears throat> and so the Westerners think that God's essence, or they think of the essence or nature, and they say the oneness isn't found in the Father. The oneness is found in the one common nature, and the one common nature shared by all three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are inner relationships within the divine nature. Relationships of origin, you could say that, that the you know, eternal generation of the Father and the uh, eternal uh, procession of the Spirit, but ultimately what unites them is not the Father, it's the common divine essence. One divine nature exists in both the Father and the Son, and it was also the source of the Holy Spirit. So the West was very zealous on this because they wanted to emphasize the equality of the Father and the Son. Otherwise, it looks like the Son is inferior to the Father, and they think, well, that opens the door for Arianism. Um, so that was their main argument, was that the Eastern Church was undermining the full deity of Christ. Now, of course, the Eastern Church wasn't. These guys are really arguing about speculative stuff. That it's just what's, what's happening. Um, But that that is how they looked at it. Now, the East responded that, okay, if your argument's true and you're saying we're, in a sense, compromising the full deity of the Son, well, you're compromising the full deity of the Holy Spirit. Your your argument could be worked against you because, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, if he were not equal with the Father... as the, well, hold on. How did, how did I have this worded? Um, the East responded that this undermines the full deity of the Holy Spirit if he was not equal with the Father as the source of the Son. Yeah, so if the Son and the Father are equal in being the source of the Holy Spirit, then would not the Father and Holy Spirit have to be equal by being the source of the Son? The East thought this messes the whole thing up, uh, but it, it didn't. I think they overstated that. Uh, but anyhow, besides the theological arguments... I think this is a fair argument they make here. The East insisted that the West, you had no right to add a clause. We had an ecumenical council at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and then again at the Council of Constantinople in 381 where all the bishops together from both sides came up with the Nicene Creed. It takes all of us to change it. You can't just unilaterally change it in the West without our consent. That's wrong. The Nicene Creed is the property of the whole church, not just the Western church. Now, Photius's ideas and character are going to win allies. Ignatius, his great rival, ended up being an ineffective patriarch anyway. And so Basil's like, no wonder my predecessor deposed this guy and replaced him with Photius. Ignatius is just a fool. And so he's, he's realizing I shouldn't have been so hard on Photius. So he shows favor to Ignatius' former rival, lets Photius out of uh, his, his imprisonment and makes him the tutor of his own sons. Um, And as he's teaching the emperor's sons, the emperor starts to really like uh, Photius, like, hey, I like this guy. He's not not too bad. And and Photius was a charming and brilliant guy, so he's hard not to like. Even Ignatius, his arch enemy, by the end of his life really loved him. Um, Because when Ignatius got sick and was on his deathbed and losing his health, Photius ministered to him, said, I, I got you, man, I'll take care of you. And then Ignatius is like, you know, feeling real bad. Like, I fought you all this time, and you're the real deal. You're a good guy. And, uh, and that's just how Photius was. And after Ignatius died, then the emperor's like, all right, Photius, you are patriarch again. And so, in 879, Photius summons another council and reverses everything from the last council. And so, for now, the so so now the, the filioque is uh, condemned, the West is condemned, and for the next six years, interestingly enough, he runs both the church and the state because Emperor Basil went mad, and he thought he went mad. that like he thought God was punishing him for killing his uh, predecessor. He's like, oh, that's why I'm going crazy. Maybe, but either way, Photius was running both church and state. But then the emperor died, and when he died, his son Leo became emperor. And despite Leo being taught by Photius, like he was his beloved teacher, once Leo gets power, he don't care about his teacher anymore, and he deposes him. He says, "Uh, you're deposed, and I'm exiling you. Why? Simply because Leo's brother, Stephen, who was another, also a student of Photius, um, he wanted to be patriarch. And so I was like, well, it's between you, my teacher, or my brother. You, my teacher, you're out. My brother is now the patriarch. Uh, Again, very, very corrupt. And so this halted Photius's anti-West movements and stopped the split again from happening at this time. Now, getting back to the West side, the popes agree with the filioque clause from very early. But they also agreed with the East that in the West, we got no right to change it. Something changed in the 11th century and, and historians can't pinpoint when, but at a certain point in the 11th century, all of a sudden the popes flipped the script on that and said, no, we do have the right to change it because the, the seat of Rome is superior to all the rest of the church combined. So all it takes is the one Bishop of Rome to say it should be there and it should be there. So for centuries, the popes would not dare say that because they recognized it was wrong. But eventually Don't know which one was the first one, but an 11th century pope, it started with one of them where they're like, no, this is our right um, to to change it. And so they're like, we are adding the the, um, clause and we expect the East to do the same, but the East wouldn't. And this is what leads to the great schism of 1054. Um, where you you get the, the full breaking. so And it's going to be political happenings, again, that push it over the edge. The Byzantine emperor, and so Photius is dead. He's long dead. We're, we're over 100 years after that now. Uh, you have this tenuous peace. But again, when the 11th century comes, when the 10 hundreds come, popes are now saying, no, we are going to force this on the east as well. So what politically is going to kind of get this all going is the Byzantine emperor, Constantine the IX, Um, His years are 1042 to 1055. Those are his reign dates. He made a military and political alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor, which was uh, Henry III, whose reign dates were 1039 to 1056. He made a political military alliance with Henry and Pope Leo IX. And his papal dates were 1049 to 1054. Now, why did these three guys who normally would be opposed to each other, why did they come together? Because you have a new threat called the Normans. He had a guy named Norman. No, I'm just kidding. The Normans were Vikings. Okay. And they were specifically the Vikings that were coming in from France. Uh, and they were threatening both the Papal lands and the Byzantine lands. And the interesting thing is by this point, these Normans were Christians. But these Normans are like, you know what, we're gonna steal Pope lands and we're going to steal Byzantine lands. Because remember, the Byzantine Empire still owned some land in Italy. So the Normans were moving in, and the Pope's forces couldn't stop them, and the Byzantine's troops there couldn't stop them on their own. So they all decided together maybe we could stop them. But Constantine, knowing that you know this is over in the West, we need their help to strengthen this alliance, he demanded that the Patriarch of Constantinople, Michael uh, uh, Cerularius, his uh, patriarch dates are 1043 to 1058. He demanded that Saerularius uh, acknowledge the superior authority of Rome over Constantinople. Like, hey, this is a military alliance. We need this to work. Just drop your pride. Tell the pope you're be- he's better than you. That, that Rome is, after all these years, they've been right the whole time, Rome is the, the primacy. You know, the, the pope is the bishop of bishops. Well, Saerularius refused. He's like, No. I'm not going to do that, emperor, which now jeopardizes this whole military alliance. So say Saerularius and, and the scholarly bishop of Bulgaria, they write a letter to the pope and all the Western Catholics detailing the errors of their practice. All those things I brought up on the first slide, they just brought that all up. You're wrong for this, 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 and this. You are not superior to us. And you know, the irony is the East was so wrong on this first one. Like in their letter, they're like, you're wrong for using unleavened bread in Lord's Supper. It should have leaven in it. It's like, are you kidding me? The original was unleavened from Passover. That's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then there were some uh, other trivial things as well. Some things the East was probably closer to being biblical on. Some things the West was, but they pretty much called out the West for every difference and said, you're wrong. So Pope Leo IX then replies through a cardinal sending a serularius a letter setting out in an uncompromising way all the exalted claims of the pap- papacy. So in other words, it's like, OK, you're saying we're wrong on all this, but let's just get down to it. Peter was the head of the church. Jesus made him the head of the church. He was the first bishop of Rome. We inherit this position from him. Our claim to apostolic possession is better than yours. So whatever we say is going to be right over what you say. And if you don't accept it, then you're not even a real Christian. So again, Pope is, is, you know, flexing his... I'm not going to call them theological. I'm going to call him just religious. He's flexing his religious muscles here and, and his claims. Um, so again, things are, are, are heating up here and, and it looks like they're going to split, but then the quarrel gets halted when the Normans actually defeat the Pope's army and capture the Pope. So now that the Pope is imprisoned, And now that the threat to the East is even greater, um, Celularius is going to have to calm down a bit and he's going to have to be more willing to work out an agreement with Leo's representative. So Leo sends a guy named Cardinal Humbert because remember, Leo's captured. The Vikings got him, you know. So the guy who's ruling on behalf of the Pope as his proxy is Cardinal Humbert. So anything Humbert says has the full authority as if it was the Pope itself. Um, So when... Humbert meets Cerularius, it was disastrous. They're supposed to work something out. Both men were stubborn, and arrogant, and didn't want to listen to each other. And so pretty much uh, the whole thing broke down. And then when news reached Constantinople that Leo actually died in captivity, Severularius is like, the Pope who appointed you is dead. You no longer have any legal right to negotiate on behalf of Rome, so get out of here. And Humbert's like, no, I still do. I was appointed, and this is what I'm going to do. And so Humbert, with the other papal delegates that went with him, they march into Hagia Sophia, the great Eastern church in uh, Constantinople. And on July 16th, 1054, they lay on the altar, which is the most holy part of that church building, a document of excommunication mm. for Celularius and all who follow him in criticizing the Roman church, all you who think you, they were wrong on anything. In the Roman church, you are all am- anathematized. You're all condemned to hell. In fact, the document condemned Serularius, all the Eastern bishops that agree with him. And it said, you are condemned with the heretics like Arius, with the devil and his demons. <laughs> and so Serularius responded by then anathematizing Humbert and the papal ambassadors. And so the thing is, the West, henceforth, accepted its excommunication of the east and the east accepted its excommunication of the west and since there can only be one church each regarded the other as being heretics not being the true church and that is why it is not one church anymore that's why there's two names Um, so that's how this all goes down they all excommunicated each other on the same day um, in very dramatic flamboyant fashion now each, I want to just talk for a moment about each side's understanding of the schism. Um, you know, and hopefully those pictures show that they're testing each other's breath mints. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, you know, and it comes down to, the, the again, the filioque okay controversy. And then the East is like, we're orthodoxia in that picture. And then the West is like, ah, we're filioque. okay. But anyhow, the way each understood the damnation of the other is very telling. I think both of these guys were nuts. But I think the West was actually more nuts here. See, the East believed itself to be the true church. So they said, West, as soon as you excommunicated us, the true church, you cut yourself off from grace and salvation because you excommunicated the church. By you excommunicating the church, you actually set your, severed yourself from grace. The West's rationale is even worse. They're like, no, no, you're cut off from grace simply because Humbert said so on behalf of the Pope, meaning a decision that comes from the papal office can damn someone to hell. That's why you guys are damned to hell because Rome said so. Where the East is like, no, you guys are damned to hell just because you pushed away the real church. The West is like, no, no, we could push away anybody. Whoever we push away is going to hell. So again, the West's answer is a lot more arrogant here. And, and you can see that, listen, at the end of the day, the history of Roman Catholicism is a lot more violent and coercive than the history of Eastern Orthodoxy. It just is. And and you could tell because this becomes the attitude of the papacy. Um, now the effects of this would be seen in in two ways. First, for the next thousand years, neither will recognize the other as Christians. That did not change till the nineteen sixties. So again, some people in this room were alive. When that happened, some people in this room were born at a time where the results of that excommunication in 1054 were still in effect. So just think about that. Um, So anyhow, and then the second thing is because they didn't deem each other as Christians, what you do to each other now doesn't matter. And during the Crusades, the Crusaders are going to commit outrageous acts against Eastern Christians. You know, they're going to massacre people like like nothing, and they will rape, pillage, all that kind of stuff. Now, these excommunications and their anathemas were officially lifted by Pope Paul IV and Patriarch Athenagoras in 1965. So now Catholics can go to Eastern Orthodox churches and receive communion, and vice versa, they could take confession, they could do all that but the churches have not reunited. they're still two, not one, because if they do reunite under the Roman understanding, that means they would have to fall under the Pope. And under the Eastern, they're like, no. And so they recognize each other. They open up each other's communion to each other, but they're not one church. It is still Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. So that's the first big event. The second big event during this time that I wanted to talk about were the Viking invasions. The Viking invasions of the ninth and 10th centuries almost destroyed Christian civilization. The Norsemen, they worshipped all the same gods of the German pagans before the Germans converted. So Odin, Thor, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And it was a very violent religion centered around war. Heaven is, uh, to them, Valhalla, where pretty much all the warriors who have more notches on their belt of how many people they killed are going get to get drunk in the afterlife and sleep with more people in the afterlife. It was just a very, very uh, violent, <laughs> violent religion. And, and just form a paganism. And when the Norsemen would attack the European lands, um, they would raid the churches, the monasteries. They would massacre the priests. They would rape the nuns. They would steal all the gold. And they had no respect for their enemies at all. Um, at all. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily recommend it, but the f- I watched the first season of that show Vikings when it came on History Channel. And they did a pretty good job of showing how the Vikings were when they went into um, like these English cities for the first time. They didn't leave anybody alive, except maybe a few people they took as slaves. Now, given their wickedness and their savagery and their absolute hatred of Christianity, mainly because they were committed to their paganism, um, it seemed impossible that the Vikings would embrace the Christian faith. All these guys wanted to do was conquer, rape, and pillage, and steal, and plunder, right? Um, so, like, why would these guys ever become Christian? But It happened. It happened. Eventually, they're going to become Christian. And so um, it starts in England. It begins in England. Now, at this time, before the Vikings first make their invasions, uh, there's no such thing as England. You have multiple Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, which I talked about when I talked about the Goths. Moving into Europe. So you got a whole bunch of little kingdoms in England. There's not a unified king of England. You got Anglo Saxon kingdoms. And when the Danish Norsemen invaded, uh, the Anglo Saxon kingdoms fell one by one. They were not able to fight off these Vikings. These Vikings are just fearsome warriors, no fear. Um, But one kingdom held out the southern kingdom of Wessex under King Alfred, who later was dubbed Alfred the Great. He reigns from 871 to 899. He crushed the Vikings decisively. He knew how to beat them, and he did beat them in 878. And so he beat them so bad that the Danes were forced to accept a peaceful division of the land. He's like, all right, look, we're, I'm not going to kick you out of the English Isle because I don't own it all anyway, but let's peacefully divide the land. And the condition of us not fighting you more and killing you more is that the Danish king... Or the Viking king and his court need to be baptized because we don't trust you not to persecute Christians in the territories we're going to let you have. But if you get baptized and claim fealty to Christ, then we know you will not persecute these, uh, these natives. And so the Danes agreed. You know, at, at the end of the day, they're like, well, we get something out of it. And so they submitted to the Christian faith. And so you have this piece, and then under Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, who reigned from 925 to 939, um, they actually, the Danes become incorporated in the society, they become nobles, and they become part of a political and spiritually united Christian England, which was very interesting. They became one people, is my point. They weren't two peoples anymore, and they were a united Christian people. Um, So because of all this stuff, Alfred is nicknamed the Charlemagne of England. Um, And the difference is he didn't have the sexual scandals that Charlemagne had. So he he was a a uniter and he really was pious. Charlemagne was pious, but Charlemagne had trouble with the ladies. Alfred didn't. So he was devout. He was humble. He was prayerful. He was generous. um, And he built a Christian civilization that could flourish. So historians credit Alfred as the founder of England, right? When you think of England, because before this, they were Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Now you have an English kingdom. Um, he's the first founder of the English nation. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms used to be independent, but the Norse invasions forced everything to become one, at least below Hadrian's Wall. I mean, above that, you're going to have the Scots. They'll form into their own people, but below that, you're going to have the, the, the English. Um, And he founded the English Navy, which is still famous today. He strengthened the English army. He built fortified cities all around the coast where different Viking invaders could not breach England. Every time they tried, they got they got whooped. Um, So he's the first European that figured out how to stop the Norse. And the ones that were already there joined him, So uh, it all worked out. And he's also the first to official or to uh, first official to. Our first king to say we have to have an official history of England. And so they started the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. And this is when we actually have now a written history of England starting that was continually built upon. And that's why one reason we know what happened in England. So, yeah, kind of interesting guy. Now, when we moved to France, the Norsemen were called Normans, so if you wonder where it comes from. Now, why are they called Norsemen? Coming from what was called Norway. Now, Vikings is what they are, but they're Norsemen because they're from what we call Norway, and the French just took the s out of it, and they're Normans. Um, it's kind of like, I, I, I don't know, that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, when you, I look at some of these French words, it's like they just stop at the end of it. It looks like it should be oaks, and it's like, ooh. So anyhow, um, so anyway, that probably has nothing to do with Normans, but anyhow, the Normans conquered northern France, and what's going to happen is the French king, Charles the Simple, he reigned from 898 to uh, 923, he's going to make a treaty with their leader, Rollo. He's like, all right, if we keep fighting the Vikings, we're going to lose, so maybe we could buy them off. So Rollo, we will Take this whole part you conquered of northern France and we'll create a duchy out of it. And we'll make you a duke. You'll be a rich duke. You know, you'll, you'll have uh, nobody's ever going to fight you or try to kick you out. I mean, it's, it's yours. But you have to embrace the Christian faith. You have to be loyal to the French king and we'll make it worth your while. And Rollo agrees with this. And then, you know, you give it time and Rollo's people start to actually believe Christianity and they become formidable allies to the French crown. Now, by the time you get to the 11th century, which is the next century, the Christian French Normans go in and conquer the papal lands and the Byzantine lands in Italy, which precipitated the events that led to that 1054 schism. We already talked about that. These same Normans also conquered Sicily from the Muslims. Because I mentioned in the, in the Islamic lesson last week, the Muslims uh, conquered Spain. They conquered the southern part of Italy. They conquered Sicily. The Normans pushed them out of, out of a lot of that. And one thing to keep in mind, one thing that will make the Crusades possible are the Viking navies. You know, the, the now Christianized Vikings, um, they have these fleets. They know how to sail. The, the Islamic world is going to get hit hard when the Christians unite to go to war with them. So these uh, Norsemen become the military champions of the Western Catholic Church. So at first they're the threat to it, but then they, they help it flourish. Now, some of you may have learned this in, in world history. In 1066, William the Conqueror, who was the Duke of Normandy, he's actually going to conquer England and overtake you know, the empire that Alfred or the kingdom that Alfred built. And it's going to be now under the control of, of the Normans. And he is King William I. But again, his conquest of England didn't destroy England. It just strengthened it. And, and if I remember right, the current monarchy of England is descended from William I. In some way, I mean, I know there's some dilution and, you know, murders and all that kind of stuff. But in some way, they're all going back to, to William I., Um, The conversion of the the Norse kingdoms of Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and Finland soon followed after this. By the time you get to 1100, they're they're all Christians at this point. Um, Iceland, I found theirs interesting that, you know, you had the missionaries go over there. Some people started to convert. The pagan natives are like, yeah, we, we ought to kill them. And then they asked some old wise guy, what should we do? And the old wise man said, well, okay, let's have the smartest pagan make his argument. Let's have the smartest Christian make his argument. And then the Icelanders, who were Norse, they decided, well, whatever the wise guy gets convinced by, that's what we all convert to. And he got convinced by the Christian argument and Iceland became Christian. So that's their story. Kind of interesting. Um, And and you have to keep in mind that also um, you had Western missionaries already working among the various Norse kingdoms for a long time. And at first they were dismissed because uh, what do the Norse value? Warlike culture and, you know, Missionaries follow the Prince of Peace. But when you have the, not the revival, but the resurgence of the Holy Roman Empire, um, or revival of Germany in the 10th century, that's going to cause the Norse to actually start to respect Christianity. And I'm specifically talking about Otto the Great. Um, what, what you had, because remember how I said 100 years after Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Empire split apart. And so what you ended up having were six tribal states of the former Holy Roman Empire, wasn't united, wasn't strong. But with the Norsemen invasions and the Magyars, um, which I talked about, they were these Asiatic people pushing into Europe through Hungary. Um, These six tribal states decided to reunite back into the Holy Roman Empire under the leadership of Otto the Great, who reigned 936, 973. And he again, revived the Holy Roman Empire. He defeated the Magars, the Norsemen, and the Slavs, making Germany into a great national power. He also rescued the Pope from Lombard aggression, just like Charlemagne once did. And what did the Pope do to Charlemagne when he rescued him? He crowned him Holy Roman Emperor. And so the Pope is going to do the exact same thing in gratitude. Otto, I'm going to place this crown on your head since, after, you know, from the time of Charlemagne to now. We haven't had any real Holy Roman Empires, but now we are er, emperors, but now we do again. And the way Otto rebuilt his Germanic kingdom was through the church. This is genius. Wrong, in my opinion, but genius. What he did is instead of giving the you know how like in feudalism, um, land is inherited. So you empower this noble. He now rules this duchy and it passes on to his kids and their kids and all that. What uh, Otto did is he, he appointed bishops as the dukes. He's like, look, I'm just going to make you a secular official and I'll pay you. And a lot of these guys were like, okay, because that's more money than they got from the church. And, and why is this brilliant? because none of these guys are married. They don't have any heirs. And so when they die, he gets to pick the next one. And when that one dies, he gets to pick the next one. This keeps everything centralized and control of all the little fiefdoms within his kingdom are all under the control of the crown. Brilliant, you know, to use the church to keep control that way. I don't know if the church realized it was getting played that way, but um, hat goes off to, uh, to uh, Otto for, for figuring that out. So those are the Viking invasions. Again, reshapes Europe, just like the Gothic invasions did, makes Europe stronger and will set the stage for the Crusades. So the last thing I want to talk about, and I do have quite a bit to cover here, are the holy orders or religious orders. This is a staple of Roman Catholicism. It's the next, I guess you could say, level of monasticism. To me, it sounds a lot like Harry Potter kind of stuff. Um, That's what makes it interesting. But, uh, but anyhow, remember multiple lessons ago, I talked about the Cluny revival. It's when I talked about the monasticism. We talked about the Benedictine orders and all that. These were the rules that the monasteries followed. But then at some point they got worldly. So in the 10th century, you have the monks at Cluny say that, no, we are going to reorganize. Um, and we're going to be moral. And the one way we could do that, we can't trust the the local bishops to hold us accountable anymore. So we're going to be held accountable by the Pope himself. And that revival strengthened the morality of the monasteries in the 10th century. And from there, monasticism is going to grow because a precedent gets set of monks responding to the Pope directly. And, you know, they're having to be holy. They're having to get permission for what they do from the papacy. That idea is going to reach new levels in the 12th and 13th centuries with the founding of many new orders. All new orders of monks had to get their authority from the Pope. Otherwise, they cannot exist as an order. Uh, So what would happen is their leader would arrive in Rome, petition the Pope to grant their order existence. And if the Pope approves, then they exist. Um, Now, some were denied Others were accepted. But because of these factors, the papacy's authority and influence will greatly increase because these religious orders are going to be way better monks than any that have come before them, and they're going to be popular with the people. And if all these orders are loyal to the pope, who are they going to stir the people's affections towards? The pope. Just makes sense. Okay, so the first one I'm going to talk about is the Cisternians, um, which some people call them the white friars because they wore white. Um, and they have like white little yarmulke looking things. And the most famous of them was Bernard of Clairvaux. See, that's what I'm talking about. I look at that, it's Clairvaux. But nope, they're like Clairvaux. <laughs> so anyhow, he lived 1090 to uh, 153. And he's known for his role in motivating the Second Crusade. In fact, he was called the monk of the Crusades. He got pretty much all of Europe riled up to go to war. It's crazy, but we'll talk about that when I get to the Crusades. But he was probably the most magnificent preacher of the Middle Ages, probably one of the best preachers of all time. Um, But what I'm going to focus on here is just his role in religious orders, expanding the Cistercians, Ah, I could always say it wrong, Um, or the White Friars. Now, he was born to a wealthy family of crusading knights, but his mom said, no, you're called to something greater, son. And so he goes to theological college. He learns grammar, logic, rhetoric, and the scriptures. He loved his mom. When she died, he was so mad that he's like, you know what? He's torn. Should I just... Forget all this and go sow by wild oats or should I follow God? Well, at age 22 in the year 1112, he surrendered to God and he became a monk and he called this his conversion. So even though he learned all that stuff, he didn't consider himself converted till he fully gave himself over to God after a rough patch, um, which followed his, his mother dying. Now, the, and I'll talk more about him when I'm done talking about this Cistercians. Um, the monastery he joined was their community in Citeaux, France. And they were a group of Benedictines that reformed themselves in 1098 to where they're going to be a little different. They're going to have different focus. And so what was set them apart from everybody else was their plainness. And the simplicity of their lit, uh, liturgy, they're just going to keep it simple, sing in word of God. They're going to dress plain. They wore white robes. They had head coverings that were white and they focused on manual labor. People are going to know us as people who are just out in the fields working. And we're going to work in the most desolate places you can think of. Um, so that's where they chose to create their monasteries. For example, in 1115, Bernard and 12 other monks set up a new Cistercian monastery in a desolate place that was called by the locals the Valley of Wormwood. Like, nothing could live there. But he renamed it the Valley of Light, which is Clairvaux. In French, that's why he's called Bernard of Clairvaux. And uh, it thrived is a monastic community. And under his leadership, it became the parent monastery of 68 other monasteries dedicated to the same principles. So like we talk about church planting, he's monk planting or monastery planting. Um, And by the time of his death, because he's going to kind of move on from this and do other things. But by the time of his death, the number grew to 338 Cistercian Cistercian, um, monasteries all over Europe and in the Middle East. Now, these white friars were notable in the fact that they helped Christianize uh, Sweden from, Viking, uh, from their, uh, the Swedish Vikings to Paganism, uh, from their Paganism to Christianity. Uh, now, it became officially Christian under King Olaf uh, Skatenung, who lived from or reigned from 994 to 1024. But even when he said, we are Christian, most Swedes were like, no, we're not. And they were still committed to their paganism. So it's going to be in the days of a later king, um, over 100 years later, Sverker, um, 1130 to 1155. The Christian faith finally does win the hearts of the whole nation. How does it do it? Sverker asks the Cistercians to send a whole bunch of monks into their country. And their evangelism was so successful that they won over the rest of the nation. And the stronghold of paganism, like the most pagan or Norse pagan center in the world, Uppsala, became a center of Christianity. And. Um, And it became the center of the uh, Swedish Christian church. And the Swedish Christian church until modern secular times was one of the most pious churches in Europe and one of the most pious churches during the Reformation. They become uh, Protestant or Lutheran uh, pretty quick and they were very, very pious. And so um, just interesting that it was these monks that turned the tide on that. Now, going back to Bernard, he's got an interesting story. So I I thought it was worth uh, talking a little bit about him. as I mentioned, greatest preacher of his era, his sermons focused on God's love. And, they, and what people would say is that his sermons helped you picture heavenly realities. In fact, when he would preach, you're like, man, I can't wait to die. There's just nothing on this earth that sounds anywhere near as good as what this guy's telling us we're going to get. And so it was dim next to the vision he cast. Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian, and so in theory, most loyal to the theology of Augustine, Martin Luther said Bernard's written sermons are leagues above Augustine's. Because he's like, when I read Bernard, I see Christ every single time. Excellently. For an Augustinian to say that, that lets you know how good Bernard's sermons must have been for the time. Um, Now, Theologically, Bernard was an Augustinian, so predestination, sovereignty of God, all, all that good kind of stuff. Um, one thing that we wouldn't like about him is he popularized uh, the adoration of Mary, probably more than any other leader of his time. Like, we need to adore her. He, he pretty much said she was an intercessor between you and Christ. That if you, so he would say, if you're afraid of the thunderous wrath of the Father, then approach the Father through Christ. But if you're afraid of Christ then approach Christ through Mary, which again, no, don't ever do that. But, the, the, that, you know, he definitely exalted uh, Mary that way. But he does deserve credit for this. He vigorously opposed the doctrine of Immaculate Conception. It was becoming more and more popular in Europe at this time. And the doctrine of Immaculate Conception, the idea was that Mary had to be sinless herself, to have born the God-man. Well, how could she be sinless if you have original sin? She had to be immaculately, immaculately conceived in her mother's womb where the Holy Spirit protects her from in- inheriting the sin nature. That way she could be a perfect human that never sins, that then bears the Christ child. Again, none of that is biblical. Mary was a sinner. She calls God her savior. Only sinners need a savior. Um, so this was just something that they added. And, and Bernard's like, yeah, this is wrong. This Immaculate Conception is wrong. Today, the Immaculate Conception is official Roman Catholic doctrine. In Bernard's time, it was popular, but it wasn't official. So the most popular Christian in Europe could say it was wrong and and nothing would happen to him. By the time you get to 1800s and what have you, if you were to say it's wrong, um, at least in Catholic countries, you'd face consequences. Now... He is also very much known for his rivalry with one of the most brilliant men of the time, Peter Abelard. And I'll be talking about Peter Abelard when we get to scholasticism, when we're done with the Crusades. But Peter Abelard, we even get like a theory of the atonement from him. He was a, a guy into speculation, reason, philosophy. He loved debating. He was one of the intellectual giants of the day. And thousands flocked to hear his lectures in Paris. Uh, until he was disgraced. It turns out he had a love affair with his young female pupil, Heloise, and so he lost his position. Um, Now, before even his scandal, Bernard considered him arrogant. Like, why are people listening to this guy? He values his own reasoning and speculations above Scripture. So, obviously, Abelard hears that the West's most beloved preacher is talking trash, so Abelard didn't like Bernard. Bernard didn't like Abelard. But both men actually respected each other's abilities. And here's what I mean. Bernard's preaching was so captivating that arrogant Abelard said, I feel like an ant next to an elephant when I hear this guy preach. But then Bernard was so impressed with how smart Abelard was. He's like, I feel like David going up against a giant. And so they hated each other, but they respected each other because they realized the one thing that the other one has is it's, it's impressive. It's a, I have a worthy foe. Type of thing, you know. It's kind of like Joker not wanting to kill Batman in the the Christian Bale movies, you know, because he's just too fun. You know, a, a good a good rivalry here. Uh, so anyhow, the the interesting thing is they both accused each other of believing in damnable heresies. Yet in reality, their theology wasn't hardly different at all. Their main difference was attitude and spirit. Where. Where specifically Bernard would say that, listen, the Christian mind is to be humble before the mysteries of our revealed faith. You don't question the Bible. Like, like Abelard acts like the Bible's up for debate and that through human reason we confirm it. And, and Bernard's like, no human reason submits to it, and then we're able to see clearly. Where Abelard, he comes to the same conclusions theologically as Bernard, but he gets there through debating and disputations and stuff like that, and and Bernard just simply didn't like it. He thought it was the wrong way. Now, of course, Bernard wins the battle because Pope Innocent II agreed with Bernard, and so Abelard was condemned to a perpetual silence and confinement. You're going to stay in this particular monastery in Cluny under the custodianship of Peter the Venerable. You're not going to write anymore. You're not going to teach anymore. And he died a year later in that, uh, you know, under the protection of Peter the Venerable. And Peter says that um, uh, Peter Abelard died as a truly repentant man with a humble spirit. So he says in the last year of his life, he did change. And so maybe him and Bernard are buddies now, you know, (laughs) in the afterlife saying, all right, I'm a better preacher than you, but you're a better philosopher. Who knows what their conversations would be like. But anyhow, uh, Bernard's overall influence, this is the last thing I'll say about him, his stellar reputation made him the most influential man in Western Christianity in his time. Everybody sought his advice, especially when it came to the election of bishops and there was one point where the cardinals picked two different guys to be popes you had rival popes and so people were like Bernard which one he's like innocent the second and it was all done it's guaranteed whoever this guy said they were going to listen to not because he had political power he didn't they just respected him theologically that much he also discipled a young man who went on to be a later pope eugenius the 3rd and eugenius the whole time he was pope kept saying bernard What about this? What about that? Well, what should I do? He was always looking for advice. So this lets you know that Bernard was remarkable. But interestingly, he had a low title. He was just an abbot. He was was only abbot of Clairvaux, never higher than that. Kings, emperors, and popes all sat at his feet, yet he was just an abbot. They all tried to convince him to take higher positions, government positions, religious positions. Nope. He's like, I'm just going to be an abbot. I'm just going to teach people. I'm just going to disciple people. And yet the most powerful people in the world actually went to him. It's it's very interesting. Um, but anyhow, his his reputation also grew due to miracles. But even on that, he was humble. Like he prayed over people and there are recorded spectacular miracles. But he would say, you know what? It's God that did it. I just prayed. And, and what I could say is there have been at least three situations where I prayed over somebody. One time what they had was terminal and we as the elders prayed. We felt something happening. And then the person went back to the doctor and the lump that was in the lungs was gone the next week. This stuff happens, right? And, uh, and Bernard had the right attitude where he said it was God. You know, where everybody wants to say, Bernard's the miracle worker. He's like, no, God's the miracle worker. He just answered uh, my prayer. So it's very, very interesting. I, I, I kind of like Bernard. The overall is a net positive, I think. Now the next big group are the Franciscans. Um, they have nothing to do with San Francisco. Um, okay, so the Franciscans were founded by the most well-known and popular medieval Catholic saint, Francis of Assisi. Um, years eleven eighty-two to twelve twenty-six. He was the son of a wealthy merchant. He served uh, as a soldier early on. But in his early 20s, he had several religious experiences. He claimed he had visions and he was hearing heavenly voices. So based on those visions, he takes a vow of poverty. And then he renounces and disowns his own father because his father thought he was crazy because he was hearing voices. So he's like, well, I only need God as my father. I don't need my dad as my father. So, you know, kind of probably not the the best way to, to honor your father. But in 1209, Francis heard Matthew chapter 10, verse 7 through 10, read in a church, and he took it as a call from God that he was supposed to be a preacher that travels. And once he starts traveling, and once he starts preaching, it did not take long for him to get followers. Couple factors for it: he was a good preacher, he was charismatic, he had a compelling personality, and historians say he was handsome. And you know, there's that also draws people. Not that they're you know gay, but it's just that you know people like good-looking people. It's just just the way it's just the way it is. And so um, it drew a lot of people to him. So he had followers. And uh, he was very much focused on simplicity, where you had scholasticism at this time, that we're going to over-intellectualize Christianity in our doctrines, and we'll argue about how many angels could fit on the, 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 the pinhead of a needle, you know, and stuff like that. And, and pretty much he's like, no, we don't need that kind of intellectualism. We need simplicity. He's like, just look around at nature. You can see God in nature. Um, and, and and what God has called His servants to do is take care of the poor, take care of the outcasts, the people who are ignored and marginalized, and so that's what he he wanted to do. So he, you know, you know the famous quote. He likely didn't say it, but people will say that always preach the gospel and sometimes use words, and then they put Francis of Assisi. There's no evidence evidence that he said that, but he lived in such a way where he wanted his life, and his works to show the message so that people would understand what he says by watching what he did. Now, he wrote a rule for his followers. And once he wrote that rule, now they were an order in his mind called Franciscans. Um, And one thing in his rules, and they're going to pretty much, they're going to live by begging for food from people. There's a word for this, and it comes up in one of the future slides, but it's called mendicant monks. You're a mendicant monk when you don't work for food, but you beg for it. And a lot of the orders are going to be mendicant. Now, he starts this. Franciscan group. He gets some followers. In 1210, he travels to Rome and he asks Pope Innocent III to grant his order official status. At first, Pope Innocent was like, I don't know, I don't trust this guy. He just seems a little too radical. But then the Pope had a dream where Francis was holding up the the great church building in Rome of St. John the Lateran, that building. Like it was collapsing in the dream and then Francis shows up and supermans it up. And so the Pope's like, all right, this must be from God. And so so he, he grants... Permission for this order to exist. This secured the Franciscans within the Catholic Church. But there's going to be some headbutton for sure. Under the supervision of the papacy, the Franciscans start spreading all over Catholic Europe. And and by the way, they're called Friars Minor, which meant little brothers. But their popular title were the Gray Friars because they wore dark gray. So these monks walked around. You could tell. If you just saw a group of people in gray cloaks, they're Franciscans. Um, It was dark gray, but it was gray. You could tell it was gray. Now, Francis desired that his order would have no fixed or disciplined organization, that they just follow those few rules, but they're free. It's based on individual conscience. But the Pope saw it differently. No, we put our stamp on you. Now we own your order. And if there's things we don't like in your order, we're going to change it. And so if it's going to be an official order of the church, then it will have a fixed order in discipline. And Francis resisted this, but eventually the Pope appointed a guy named Cardinal Ugolino, who was the overseer of the order. And within a few years, he becomes more important in the movement than Francis himself and starts moving away some of Francis's... uh, you know, extreme views, and he sets forth a new rule that set aside the absolute poverty. Now you can sort of own land. Um, You're going to be like the other monastic orders. You'll take a vow of poverty, but you're not going to be absolutely poor, like what he's saying. And you have to submit to the pope. Total submission to the papacy. That's why I call this Franciscan institutionalization, because Francis is a radical, he doesn't want to be institutionalized. But once he gets the pope to support um, his order, it's going to become institutionalized. So Francis resigns in 1220. You crimp him a style, man. So he resigns. He loses confidence in the direction of his movement. And he retires and lives as a hermit and dies as a sick and blind man in 1226. Now, before he resigned, though, he did secure one victory Uh, for his order. And this is something that only applied to the Franciscans. No other religious order had this. It was a statement that they will only obey leaders. Uh, They'll obey them in everything except when it's contrary to their individual conscience or the order's rule. So if a pope says do this, but they could show in their rule that it disagrees with what the pope says, or it goes against their conscience, they got the right to disregard what the Pope says. No other order was granted that. How he pulled that off, I don't know the story to it, but he at least got that. But then so many other things happened in favor of the Pope. He just, he just gave up on it. But one thing about Francis is he was big into, um, you know, the individual, um, individual conscience and, you know, the individual having a personal relationship with God. Um, Now, the future development of his order, once he died, it moved further and further away from his ideals. Even the moderate poverty was seen as impractical. So eventually the monasteries get pretty rich. Now, they're not allowed to own the money. So there's a rich friend who owns it. But when they ask, it just comes in and they're able to buy what they want and what they need. Um, Now, additionally, they, the Franciscans reverse his opposition to scholasticism. At first he's like, don't study, just like feel man, go out there and live, learn from nature. Eventually they're going to become scholastics too. And some of the greatest scholars of the 13th and 14th century were Franciscans, like uh, Dun Scotus or William of Ockham. They were Franciscans. You probably have heard of these guys. If not, I'll be talking a lot about them when we get to scholasticism after the Crusades. The most notable Franciscan was Nicholas of Lyra, probably one of my favorite guys, 1270 to 1349, he taught theology at the University of Paris, and uh, he served as the head of the Franciscan order there, and he's considered the most brilliant biblical scholar the Western medieval church ever produced. And here's what I like about him. He insisted that the historical grammatical hermeneutic, meaning taking the Bible in its plain sense has to be the superior mode over allegory. He wasn't against allegory. He just said you can't run off to the moon with your allegory. What the text means in its plain sense limits what it can mean allegorically. Um, So he said what this text says will rule over it. And he mastered the Hebrew language. One of the few that did, he actually immersed himself in rabbinical learning. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, one of the most famous rabbis of the time was Rashi. And Rashi also got Judaism to get away from allegory and back to historical grammatical. This guy learned from Rashi. So it's kind of, kind of interesting to have these two colossal thinkers, um, you know, working with each other, Jew and Christian. Um, And so Nicholas of Lyra, uh, Lyra, he wrote a, a lot of Bible commentaries. When the printing press was invented, the first thing printed on it was the Bible. The first Bible commentaries printed on it were Nicholas's. And the stuff that he wrote and taught was read by the reformers and influenced the reformers in their theology. So he probably, if he was born a little later, might have ended up being a reformer. So he's probably one of the more famous Franciscans. One more thing about Francis, then I'll move to the next order. And then after the next order, just a couple more and they go fast. I'll start talking fast because I know what time it is. So Francis's ministry, uh, it was remarkable when he was alive. He was one of the first medieval Catholics to attempt to evangelize Muslims. Most of the rest were too scared. When he got permission to go to Syria, he preached to the sultan and his army in 1219. And he impressed the sultan. Nobody converted because, you know, if you're a Muslim and you convert, it's death penalty. So even if the sultan converted and his army converted, then another Muslim army might just come and kill them. But they liked what he said. They were really impressed with him, which is kind of cool. And then he was also the first known person to experience stigmata. Stigmata is where you start bleeding in the, the palms and the ankles and the side, exactly where Christ's pierced wounds were. Now, I'm not going to argue whether or not this was real or not, but he's the first one to report it. People claim it was legitimate. It was legitimate. Um, he received it in 1224, and after that time, there's been 300 others who've been known to experience it. Some of them have been investigated, and it seems like something was happening. But here's, And some of them were canonized as Catholic saints. But here's the thing. This only exists within Roman Catholicism. It's never happened to an Eastern Orthodox. It's never happened to a Protestant. Um, Now, in recent times, some Anglicans in England claim it's happening, you know, happens to them. Now, of course, the Catholics look at this and say, see, this proves we're the real church. The rest of us look at it and say, but nowhere in the scripture does it say Christ's people are going to start bleeding from where he bled. So, like, what is this? And so I think everybody else would look at it and say, look, there's a lot of other people reading the Bible." A lot of other people living on point for Christ and none of only you guys say this happens. <laughs> I kind of look at it that way, you know, that uh, the fact that it only happens within Catholicism is not a good thing. Um, I want to go around bragging about that. That's just all I'm saying. But anyway, that's that's a very interesting um, thing with Francis. The next group are the Dominicans. Has nothing to do with the Dominican Republic. Um, Doesn't exist yet. This is named after a guy named Dominic um, from Spain. Dominic Guzman, uh, 1171 to 1221. He was a native from Castile. And uh, from childhood, he wanted to uh, be clergy. At 25 years old, he was ordained as a canon, which is just lower priest, uh, within a Spanish cathedral in Osma. But he had abilities that stood out. And so his superiors are like, we're going to send you as a missionary to Languedoc, to Languedoc. And that was in 1206. Now, Languedoc was an area, I believe it was in France, and it was under the influence of two schismatic groups I haven't talked about yet, but I will eventually, the Waldensians and the uh, Alabagensians. Alibigan, uh, um, now, the Waldensians, for all practical purposes, were Protestants before there were Protestants, uh, the Albigensians were agnostics, so they were they were real heretics. The church considered both heretics, so they sent him there to um, to evangelize them and and to bring them back. Now Dominic believed that they needed to be fought with their own weapons. Like, how did these guys get control of a whole region? Well, it's because their preachers are really good and they live simple lives. These people are looking at the exorbitant lives of the Roman Church and saying, nah. These guys are out in it for the money, and our preachers aren't good because they're just reading homilies. Remember when I mentioned that before, how they're reading sermons written by other people? So Dominic's like, no, we gotta be able to preach, better than them, and we got to also live consistently. So he goes preaching in the marketplaces and the roadsides. He lives in poverty. He's a mendicant monk as well, begging for food. Um, He didn't have initial success at first, and before he could get any momentum, he had to leave because Pope Innocent III began a savage 20-year crusade against the uh, Albigensians in 1209 where literally he wiped them out, killed their women, children, all of them, just sent the northern French soldiers in there to wipe them out. And then, of course, they got to keep their plunder and all that type of stuff. Um, so that's, that's what happened there. They, they ended up getting wiped out, so he can't evangelize them. But Dominic stayed true to his original plan. He's just thinking, I could do this plan elsewhere. I could train other monks to live in poverty. I could train them to be good preachers. We're going to dive into the word so that we could defeat heretics. Um, And I already mentioned that if you're a monk that begs, then you're uh, uh, called a mendicant monk. Um, So going a little further in the Dominicans... um, in 1215, he travels to Rome to seek the backing <clears throat> of the Fourth Lateran Council to organize his disciples into a new religious order of preaching monks. And by the way, Fourth Lateran Council is probably one of the most important. Remember that year 1215, Pope Innocent is going to make some ridiculous claims there. But anyhow, they praised his efforts, but they said, we're not going to grant you an order. Um, and instead, what we're going to do is just tell you to adopt one of the existing rules for monks. So he chose the rule of Augustine because... Theologically, he agreed with Augustine. Uh, But then the following year, Pope Honorarius III, he was the next pope. He's actually like, you know, I like what these Dominicans are about. So he does recognize them in 1217 as the order of uh, friars preachers. Now, popularly, popularly, they were called the black friars. So you got gray friars, you got uh, white friars, you got black friars. These guys wore uh, black. It, it It made them distinguishable from the Franciscans. Their initial purpose, was to preach to the religious dissenters of southern France, but eventually Dominic transforms them into an international organization that evangelized and taught theology across all of Europe. They were not as popular as the Franciscans, because the thing is, like, the Franciscans are out there loving on people and saying, oh, look at creation and look at that butterfly or whatever, whereas Dominic's group was clearly seen as a servant of the Catholic Church. You know, and so he's an institutional man where some of the Franciscans, you know, weren't always institutional. And I didn't mention this, but some Franciscans didn't like the institutionalization. And so they broke away and functioned as a group called spiritual Franciscans. Eventually, the Dominicans are going to start hunting them down and killing them. Um, But the people liked the spiritual uh, Franciscans. They, you know, they just thought they were real. Now, what... The Dominicans lacked in popular support they made up for in papal support. They were granted a unique right as well. Their unique right was to preach anywhere and everywhere. There were no borders that confined them. Um, And they were committed to scholastic theology because, again, they're battling heretics, so they have to be sharp. They have to be smart. They were apologists. Um, And so because they said this is our duty to fight heresy with our minds, they were granted as a group, to not have to do manual labor. All other monks had to do manual labor. Their labor was to study. That's all they had to do. Um, so the Dominican influence grew um, near academic centers, and um, they produced outstanding theologians. Most famously, Thomas Aquinas was a, a Dominican. Um, and uh, they, their teaching effectively made most of... Uh, Most of Europe loyal to the the Catholic faith. Uh, Now, I do want to say there was fierce rivalry between them and the Franciscans, the gray friars versus the black friars. Um, They, like, for example, the gray friars, Franciscans, they believed in Mary's Immaculate Conception. The Dominicans didn't. Um, And, you know, Dominicans also were disliked by some of the other religious orders and a lot of people because when the Catholic Church starts the Holy Order of the Inquisition or the Holy Office of the Inquisition, they give it, over to the Dominicans. So the Dominicans are going to be the ones torturing you, killing you, and all that kind of stuff um, when, they have, uh, when they get the authority to run the Inquisition. Um, and they do kill a lot of their Franciscan rivals, as I, as I mentioned. Um, so let me go over two more orders really quickly, the Carmelites and the Augustinians. The Carmelites were named after a group of crusading monks who uh, founded their order at, on Mount Carmel. Um, in the year 1154. That's why they're called Carmelites. When the Crusader states were conquered back by the Muslims, these guys had to return back to Europe. And so they reorganized themselves as a mendicant order in 1247. They wore white clothing. And so they also were called the white friars. Um, And, you know, they'll go around begging as well. The Augustinians at first were just a society of hermits that go way back But eventually, they're looking at all these new orders and the effectiveness of these new orders. And so they, too, wanted to become a mendicant order of beggars. And so they based their whole organization and their dress on Dominican models. So they wore black. Um, And then they chose as a rule the rule that was created by Augustine himself. That's why they're called Augustinians. The most famous Augustinian was the guy on the bottom there, Martin Luther. So these holy orders in some sense paved the way for the Protestant Reformation because the guy who kicks it all off was an Augustinian. Now, a couple more slides, then we're done. Um, The Cisternians, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Carmelites, and the Augustinians... Uh, They brought forth a new kind of monasticism, so I just want to compare it to the older monasticism. Older monks retreated from the world. These begging monks engaged the world with preaching. They're evangelists. They're missionaries. Um, They did this in Catholic Europe. They did this in the world of pagans, and they did this in the world of Muslims. So these new holy orders were a lot more effective in advancing the cause of the church more than the older uh, form of monasticism. They were also distinct from the other monks in that their mendicant status had them beg for food where the older monks, they cultivated their own food. They, they had you know, livestock, um, they, they planted food and all that kind of stuff, but not these guys. They just depended on, on other folks and said, hey, God will provide. Additionally, original monks were bound by an oath of stability. They had to remain at that same monastery their whole life. In the new orders, you had no such thing. You were allowed to move around from place to place to place. Um, very easily. so, And that's one reason they're going to be able to evangelize so effectively. Um, these new orders were not under the rule of the local bishop. The old monks and old monasteries were under the rule of the local bishop. These ones, who did they all get their charter from? The pope. So who do they answer to? The pope. And this is going to get them in a lot of fights with local bishops because they'll, remember, they could go anywhere. And so they go into a, a, a new diocese, and that bishop's in control of religion there, but not over these monks. These monks go, hey, I'm not under your authority. I'm going to do my thing. I'm under the authority of the pope. And boy, did that tick those local bishops off. And so it, it will end up uh, being, being a problem. Um, now, most, though, if we're going to think of all the great Catholic preachers and theologians of the later Middle Ages, none of them came out of the old monasteries anymore. They were all coming out of these new mendicate orders. And as I said, even the Protestant Reformation was birthed from this because Luther was an Augustinian. So last slide before the conclusion. Holy orders and missionary work. As I've already alluded, they were great missionaries. They even almost converted the Mongol Empire, which is very interesting. So remember, Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan is how it's really pronounced, conquers China, the Middle East, Central Eurasia—huge landmass of an empire. He dies. It gets. It goes to uh, one of his heirs, Kublai Khan, or Kublai Khan. And in 1269, Kublai Khan invited the West. They're like, "Hey, send over a hundred of your best Christian scholars to prove to the Mongol scholars that your Christian faith is superior to our ancient ancestral religion." And the Pope ignored this invitation, which is ridiculous. But a later Pope in 1289, so 20 years later, said, wait a second, why didn't we do this? And so instead of sending 100 Christian scholars, they send one, a Franciscan monk named John of Monte Corvino. And Kublai, he dies by this point, but his successor, Temur, receives John with great hospitality, gets to know him, really likes him. And just to let you know the rapidity of this, by 1305, John baptized 6,000 Mongolians. It looked like, you know, Mongolia was going to become Christian. And they ruled China at this point. So the Pope makes John of Monte Corvino the first bishop of Peking, China, um, which is very interesting. goes back to 1305. But the Chinese reconquer China from the Mongolians, and they expel all Westerners. The Chinese have always been xenophobic. Um, They think they're the center of the world. They don't need anything from anybody else. That's just their history, Right. And so they expel all the Westerners with no Westerners in the area over, the, over time. Um, Christians die off. The majority of Mongols drift from ancestral paganism to Buddhism because that's what was popular in China at this time. And that's still the case today. So the crazy thing is it was, cl- there was, it was like, we've had Joshua Project people group prayers on Sunday mornings for people in Mongolia. 700 years ago, it's close to them all being Christianized. But then as it would happen, the victory of China turned that around, so we do need to send missionaries over there. Anyhow, various political factors also halted East Asian missions. Um, the, the Khan Empire, the Mongol Empire, split into four different parts. And the guy that ruled the Middle East, uh, Timur Lane, he converted to Islam and he used the power of the sword to kill anyone In the Middle East that wasn't Muslim. Um, So the Nestorians that I was talking about, they were wiped out in Persia. Only a small amount of them survived. They'd been there for a long time, but only a small amount of them survived and moved up to the mountains. And they're still tiny communities to this day. Um, He also prevented Catholic missionaries from going over there. They'd get killed on the spot. And so he stopped these religious orders from being able to get into the Middle East. So even though they had a great run getting into East Asia, it eventually fell short. And then the Black Death hits in the the middle of the 1200s and has a resurgence in the 1300s. By that point, one-third to one-half of everybody in Europe dies. Their Missionary activity is going to shrink to a pathetic pathetic state. And it will not recover for a couple hundred years. And, so, and I'm sure I'll talk about the Black Death at some point, bubonic plague, um, rat poop, all that good stuff, and a particular, a particular mosquito. But anyhow, church history, concluding all this, was dramatically affected by these three events covered in this lesson. They're unrelated to each other, but they all happen in this time frame, which really set the stage for medieval Catholicism. First is the schism of 1054, permanently severs east and west churches. You have the Roman Catholic Church in the Eastern Orthodox Church. You have the Viking invasions that then threaten Christianity only to strengthen it when the Norsemen converted. Um, and these fierce warriors and naval experts will play a crucial, war, or crucial uh, role in the early successes of the Crusades. And Europe also takes its current ethnic, national shape from these Norse migrations, right? So the way Europeans were in the Roman times are nothing like they were now. Now, after the Gothic invasions, it was kind of like they are now. After the Norse invasions, yeah, you look at various parts of Europe where they got their ethnic makeup, it was by this point. Um, So again, Europeans are mixes of all these different kinds of groups, just to let you know. Um, and then finally, the development of holy orders carried the popular imagination, strengthened the hold of the Roman Catholic Church on Europe, and enhanced the personal power and influence of the papacy. And some of the most noble theologians came from, um, came from these holy orders. So with that, we're done, and I'll take questions in a minute.